This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and colleague at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello. What's going on over there today? Not a whole lot, as always. You need to make more happen over there. Seems like it's always boring. What's happening over there? I I never ask you what's happening over there in the amazing Scott Dyring office. Well, I don't. I do not have a tax museum in my office, but um, yeah, nothing's uh, it's happening. It's not too late to start. It's not too late to start, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know if I have the. I don't. I don't think I have the propensity to do that as successfully as you do. So it's not going to happen. It is the best tax museum in all of Southern Chapel Hill. It is the best one in Chapel Hill. Southern Chapel Hill. <laughs> Southern. Is there one in Northern Chapel Hill? I have to go. If you go, go far enough north, you come to Duke. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, uh, Jeff, tell us what's happening on Tax Chats today. So today we have Brady Kreitzer with us. Brady, do you want to introduce yourself? My name is Brady Kreitzer. I'm an author, historian, uh, as well as an instructor at Robert Morris University outside of Pittsburgh. I'm the host of uh, the podcast Dispatches, the official podcast of the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, And I'm featured on the NBC Peacock cable series, Into the Wild Frontier, which is available for streaming now. I'm the author of seven books. My latest is The Whiskey Rebellion, which we'll be talking about today. That's uh, that's exactly what we're here for, to talk about The Whiskey Rebellion. So I was actually talking to somebody today, and I was telling them about this amazing podcast episode we're going to record, and this person hadn't even heard of The Whiskey Rebellion. So can you just uh, start off, give us a brief overview of The Whiskey Rebellion, what it is, like uh, what what... What is this event that we're going to be talking about? Well, the Whiskey Rebellion is one of those really kind of uh, dream-shattering events that really challenges us as historians and people who understand history in that we like to think that after the revolution ends, the war was the hard part and keeping the republic was the easy part. But uh, as it turns out, rampant inflation, unemployment, Uh, economic crises abounding, uh, a number of different rebellions and uncertainties of government. All that leads to a very tumultuous time. So for George Washington, uh, he will lean on his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, uh, who's very popular right now, um, to, to save the American economy. And he drafts this really big, very detailed report on the public credit in 1790. It's filled with figures and tables, and he does a lot of the work himself just so no one else has to, but of course they still will. And part of that is an excise tax on whiskey. That is to say a a tax on a domestically produced good, which has never happened before. Before then, they had no tax on anything. It's all just import taxes. It was all import taxes. There was never a tax on a domestically produced good until this. So, so you know, As he does that, he also views it, I think, as a political opportunity. Most of the major whiskey distillers live in the West. That's the first West. So the Ohio River Valley of Western Pennsylvania, Kentucky, Western North Carolina, South Carolina. Um, Most of them don't care for his government policies. He's a federalist, kind of believes in the 
centralized government. They value their independence a little more. Uh, And he sees this as also an opportunity to perhaps bring them into the fold a bit more, or maybe in the worst case, bring them to heel a little bit, to bend the knee for his and George Washington's administration. As a result of the, of the tax, which we'll get into some of the particulars of it, uh, a lot of these Western frontiersmen, almost all of them Revolutionary War veterans, uh, pick up the same muskets that they fought with in, in 1776, and they fight the war anew. Uh, they already went to war over taxes once. They're willing to do it again. Uh, it'll be the biggest crisis of Washington's presidency at the time called the Western Insurrection. Uh, really of the utmost importance. And like you said, Jeff, one that most Americans really aren't familiar with. So I saw a good opportunity to, to share that. So didn't, didn't um, Hamilton, I guess part of the background of this was that Hamilton went around, I don't know if Hamilton did it, but the government somehow, the federal government kind of took on the debts that the states had uh, accrued during the Revolutionary War and then needed a way to pay for them. How, how important is that aspect of this? Or, or, or is that just part of Hamilton's kind of desire to kind of uh, increase the size of the federal government relative to maybe the individual states or colonies? Uh, Scott, you're, you're on right on the money on this one. Uh, Hamilton had a, a grand vision for, for not only saving the American economy, but creating a new American economy. At the center of that was the elimination of debts. So, you know, every state fought the revolution in different times and different ways. For You know, Massachusetts and Virginia were really, you know, had a lot of debt. Uh, some states that didn't come until later, particularly down south, had very little debt. Virginia paid theirs off through taxation of their own people. Massachusetts never could. You know, he understood that as a nation, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So, Part of his plan was to consolidate all the state debts, which were varying amounts, into one national debt, um, which incidentally we've had ever since. Um, But for Hamilton, when he thought of the American economy, he viewed it as something that could be directed and be crafted based on the utilization of our natural resources that Europe just didn't have. Europe was out of timber. Europe was, was only, you know draining, beginning to drain their coal reserves. Uh, We had unlimited timber. We had unlimited coal. We had waterways. We had enormous amounts of furs. Uh, Even still today, we're just beginning to harvest natural gas. Hamilton understood, you know, in time, America could develop the technology to, to use these resources. But he also believed that in order for that to be successful, the money had to be in the right hands. And for that, he thought of you know, the wealthiest class of people, people he he really, uh, you know, dealt with on a regular basis in New York, like Robert Morris, you know, one of the richest men in, in North America at the time. So he viewed money in the hands of the, of the makers, so to speak, as critical. But when he viewed the people of the West, these subsistence farmers who grew enough food for themselves, not really enough to pump into the market, though, they made a little money on the side. He didn't view them as helpful for the American economy. They were just kind of stagnant, kind of static where they were. Um, And these were the people that would have to pay up as a result of the Whiskey Act, as we talked about. Uh, But there's a real divide there because those those Westerners also viewed themselves as critical in the American story. 
Um, just as Hamilton believed, you know, we could harvest timber, we could mine coal, all of the, you know, trap furs, all of those things. For the Westerners, they said, well, who do you think is going to cut down the trees? Us. Uh, who's going to trap the furs? Us. So they viewed themselves as, as equal stakeholders in, the, in this story. Hamilton never saw them that way. So, so why whiskey? Once to raise this money, why tax whiskey as opposed to any of the number? You know, we, they produced a lot of stuff back then. Why not something else? The West was a corn-based world. You know, we were uh, we grew corn everywhere. Western Pennsylvania, the heart of the rebellion, will be the corn capital of North America in the 1790s. And very quickly, a lot of these farmers realized you know, they were only as, as lucrative as how much of their crop they could sell. It's going to be very hard for a corn farmer to sell his corn to another corn farmer. It'd be much easier to sell them to someone in the East, in Philadelphia, Boston, New York, who needed it. But moving that corn was tremendously difficult. The Spanish Empire still controlled the American West at the time, and they closed the Mississippi River to all American commercial traffic. So what that meant was those farmers had to find a way to move their corn eastward via an overland route. There was no uh, eastward flowing river from the frontier at that time. Uh, so whiskey was the natural solution. You could distill it down into smaller kegs or casks, move it much easier, sell it for much more money. You know, whiskey became the driving economic engine of the frontier. It's what everyone dabbled in uh, during that time. Now, another part of this was that, you know, in the East, you had these massive commercial import-export economies um, with ships coming from France and Spain and Britain every single day. You had a lot of money there. I, I mean, hard currency, specie, in places like Philadelphia, Charleston, New York. But a lot of that specie never made it to the West. Um, America really wasn't printing money or minting coins at that time. So our economy was a hodgepodge of... Spanish, uh, Spanish dollars and British pounds uh, and, you know, French, French francs and all these sort of things um, that were just really made of precious metal. So, so, so are you saying that, um, so two, two questions actually, sorry to jump in. Um, so one, you're saying it sounds like that whiskey became currency, which is kind of amazing to think about. Absolutely. And yes. the second thing, which is just kind of a question, you're saying um, they, it was, Corn was sort of more expensive to ship than whiskey because I guess it takes a lot of corn to make a little bit of whiskey. That's right. Do you know how much? I just want to know, like, how many bushels of corn or something does it take to make like a gallon of whiskey? Do you have any idea? A gallon. So, so let me t let me walk you through the process a bit. Um, for a, a person to make whiskey, what you're going to take is, and it's hard to answer that how much they would they would use because they very rarely made a single gallon like that, but. You might have five or six farmers in a community. One of them might have a, a pot still. Um, so you're going to take your corn to your neighbor. They're going to grind it up. Uh, he'll mix it with, with malt. Uh, that will ferment over time. You'll get this sort of oatmeal-y sludge. Uh, the yeast that they'll put into it next will eat a lot of the starches and convert them to sugars. Uh, and that will, that will turn into alcohol. They'll... They'll uh, heat that, that up. We call it a mash. Uh, alcohol will evaporate faster than water at a lower temperature than water. So the alcohol will evaporate uh, through a, a coiled process um, and, uh, of copper. 
and that will kind of drip out the other end and that's 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 your whiskey so it really depends on the pot still most pot stills were 10 gallons or less some people had 500 gallon pot stills making enormous amounts of whiskey um and that gets to the heart of the whiskey act itself because number one uh hamilton demanded the whiskey act fees and taxes be paid in hard currency which as you just mentioned, didn't really exist on the frontier. Goods were currency. Uh, and number two, the larger distillers essentially got tax breaks uh, built into this law. And a lot of smaller, poorer farmers saw that as being inherently unfair. So what, what was the tax based on owning a still or on gallons of whiskey? Or how, what was the, how did the tax actually work? It was, it was really an all of the above approach by Hamilton to take a major part of the American economy uh, and make it a meaningful revenue stream. So think of this more in terms of just uh, an overall regulation of the whiskey industry with taxes being a part of it. I I think the tax was anywhere from uh, eight to 16 cents per gallon, depending on, on where you lived. Uh, But it involved uh, registering your still to the federal government uh, again, paying the individual tax on, on every gallon you produced. Uh, if you didn't register your still or didn't pay the tax, the penalties were enormously stiff. Uh, it would go from maybe a, a fine that would be about four years worth of income, which is pretty shocking, to at worst, you're losing your farm completely. And these are people that you know were a lot of immigrants who couldn't even own land in Europe. And the dream of America was to own land. And now after the revolution, the government's taking your land. Right. The British Empire didn't do that. Um, and these are all these are all Revolutionary War veterans. So if you were uh, a big time distiller, say John Neville, he's a major distiller in western Pennsylvania and around Pittsburgh. He'll have a 500 gallon still. Part of what Hamilton built into the act was uh, if you prepaid your your uh, taxes based on what you produced last year, you would get a significant tax uh, tax break and exactly how much you know, depending on the situation. But if you're a big distiller, if you have employees, if you have regular customers that bring you corn, you know what your output's going to be every year. But these small-time farmers, they had no idea what their corn crop would be from one year to the next. So even if they wanted to prepay, they they had no idea how much they'd make. So they viewed that as uh, really a tax break to the much bigger distillers. And they they believed it was designed to put them out of business. So the arguments that we have today about tax benefits for the rich existed in the late 1700s, it sounds like. Oh, the rich guys get all the benefits and the poor guys get stuck with the short end of the stick. Well, there's there's two ways too, Scott, that that really hammers home for these people on the frontier because they were not, you know, they were not uninformed. Number one, a lot of the new taxes that were coming in from the Whiskey Act went to paying back the individual private Americans who invested in the revolution. So, a person like Robert Morris, the wealthiest man in America, he loaned money to the Continental Congress during the war to finance the war. These poor farmers see themselves being taxed and they say, well, where's our money going? Is it building roads? Is it building bridges? Like, well, it's actually going directly to paying back the richest man in America. So it was viewed as just, you know, almost a reverse Robin Hood of sorts by them. Very populist movement. Um, Hamilton always had this big picture of the economy. This was a part of it. But for these people, it was everything to them. And that's that's where you see a lot of the anxiety come out. So now we, we've kind of described the tax. Uh, so then what happens with the rebellion? So they get all upset. They're real angry. 
So then uh, how does this format into a rebellion that Washington then had to come crush? Jeff, this will be, and this is part of the reason it's so complicated, but this will be a four-year event. Yeah, four, hold on. Four, this took four years? Four years, This wasn't yeah. just like a thing, a day. They all revolted on no. a day. It's four years of revolting. Four years of, of American history. Okay. Uh, so, so initially, it'll go into effect in June of 1791. People are angry about it, but you know we have a constitution now. It's not that old, a couple of years old. So they say, well, the constitution allows us to petition our government, freedom of assembly, uh, on a county-by-county county basis across the frontier, they'll have meetings. They'll draft documents, you know, listing formally their complaints. For the example, in western Pennsylvania, where, where again, the worst of the rebellion occurs, um, it's very orderly. Members of the House of Representatives, members of the Pennsylvania Assembly, future members of the Senate are there. And they are signing these agreements too, these resolves. And they will take them to Philadelphia, our nation's capital, and they'll read them to Congress. And their complaints are all very orderly, very legitimate. And Hamilton knows what the complaints are going to be. He, Again, he drew this, this legislation up. Um, and he tells the people in Congress, okay, let's give them a break. They make some good points. And, and Hamilton will ask his Federalist friends, peers, partisans in Congress uh, to lower the tax rate. And they'll lower it by exactly one penny, uh, which is, you know, is viewed as an insult to all those people that played by the rules as they understood them. Uh, and after that, it's almost sort of an incendiary act. That's when we begin to see other types of uh, unrest and revolt emerge that will snowball into the, the Whiskey Rebellion as we understand it. Okay, so so all these people are mad. They're, they, they've listed their complaints. There's sort of a... Yeah kind of a half-baked response from Hamilton, or I don't know if it's half-baked, but it's probably very strategic on his part. I believe so, yes. So then, then, and he was very strategic guy. Like he he was, Hamilton like knew exactly what he was doing. Very smart guy. Okay, but now people are like, we're going to like, I mean, over the course of some years, things start to heat up. And eventually like people are like, don't don't they like go hold up some people or they start like tar and feathering some people or something? Like tell, tell us what happens there. Well, from, from 91 to 94, the, the, the federal treasury department tax collectors become the people that take the brunt of these, this re- revolt. So the poor um, IRS agents, they're the ones yes, that are yes. like. <laughs> Very okay. much. There's no IRS yet, but this would be yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they will be, um, yeah, tarred, feathered, beaten. Uh, one man is, is stabbed in the stomach with hot branding irons. Uh, and we think of tarring and feathering, you know, as, as almost silly gags, but you're talking about second and third degree burns over most of your body. Uh, the rebels will dress as, as Indian warriors because there's also an Indian war going on in, in, in western Pennsylvania, Kentucky and Ohio at the time. And that's a statement as well uh, about how much the federal government really cares about them. Um, they'll burn down the homes of tax collectors. Things really get out of hand as we get into 93 and 94 when individual counties begin completely disregarding federal sovereignty. They make their own courts. They make their own police departments. They make their own jails. They begin arresting people with this extrajudicial government. They begin making their own militias. Uh, the commander of the, of, the, of the militia in Western Pennsylvania is also the official commander of the Pennsylvania State Militia. So you see the problem of the person to fight the rebels is part of the rebels. Um, Law enforcement agents, the sheriff of Washington County, Pennsylvania, is the person perpetrating a lot of these assaults on tax collectors. 
He's the person that needs to uphold the law. So for George Washington, um, he sees really fast. This is getting completely out of control. They deem the law unenforceable in Kentucky. Kentucky's too far away. And for them, Western Pennsylvania seems to be the, the hotbed of this rebellion. And so, so, so they got to solve this problem. So what does Washington do? Like, how does he decide to solve the problem? I, I really admire Washington for a lot of reasons. Um, one is he knew what he knew and he knew what he didn't. And he relied on, on people underneath him to keep him abreast of situations. He was, a, he was good at delegating power. Alexander Hamilton, I don't believe faithfully kept Washington abreast of how bad the situation was getting. And, and largely because I think Hamilton wanted the situation to become unruly enough to use military force. Did Hamilton want it to become unruly because he was so strategic that he felt like this would be an opportunity for the federal government to kind of consolidate power? That's what it was. He wanted these people in the West cared very little for federal authority. I mean, and that goes back 50 years back to imperial authority for the British. They all understood this. Hamilton believed these people needed to be kept in check. You could argue it, it made the, you know, to make the country stronger. I, I, I really believe Hamilton had a personal vendetta against, against a lot of that, that worldview. He wanted them to respect him personally. So he's advocating for force two years before they even consider really using it. Washington kind of brushes him aside like, okay, I mean, he's really, he's really going to that well a lot. And it gets to be in 94 that, that the rebels surround the city of Pittsburgh, which is the, the, the most important city of the West at that time. I mean, St. Louis is there, but it's a small village. Pittsburgh is a major federal city. There's a, a, there's a military base there. There's federal agencies there. The Whiskey Rebels will essentially hold the city hostage and threaten to destroy it. And that's when, when Hamilton gets the green light, we could say. Washington reads the Constitution. There's never been a president before him. Uh, it says he's allowed to raise troops to stop domestic rebellion. As long as the Supreme Court justice signs off on it, he will. James Wilson. Uh, and he says he's commander in chief. So Washington will get on a, a horse, really in a carriage, and he'll take the army into the field himself. It's the first and only time a sitting president ever led an army in the field as commander-in-chief. We should, we should resurrect that, maybe. Yeah. Can you can you imagine Joe Biden, like, uh, hopping in the F-15 or whatever? I don't even know what we fly these yeah. days. Uh, I think I think the flight jacket would look great. Yeah, that would be awesome. It's, uh, what a world, right? What a <laughs> Different world. world today than it was then. So when you, how many whiskey, you said the, the whiskey rebels, like, surrounded the city, how many rebels are we talking about? How many people do they need to tamp down on? It's like a couple dozen or hundreds or thousands. This gets tricky. Some sources, the more sensational, radical elements, would say that they had 7,000 people ready to burn Pittsburgh. Um, and again, that's not just one, that's not just a random city. That's the federal capital of the West, essentially. Um, others will say there was 1,500 at the ready. I think 7,000 is probably a little bit sensational. Um, but I, I, I'd be willing to say between 1,000 and 1,500 armed men Revolutionary War veterans, mind you, ready to march. And so they're just like camping out around the city. So Washington comes on his horse. What? How, how many? How many people did he round up? Washington. Well, Washington will actually build a pretty impressive army of thirteen thousand men from state militias of Virginia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. But it's an interesting thing when they finally get to Pittsburgh. Washington will get as far as a place called Bedford, 
Hamilton will take them the rest of the way with Light Horse Harry Lee, the governor of Virginia. Um, there's still 13,000 federal troops ready to ready to go. So I say in, in the book that it becomes, you know, the largest law enforcement action in American history because these 13,000 men, these soldiers, they basically turn into a police force and they will arrest almost 200 people, um, you know, because as the army gets closer to Pittsburgh, a lot of the leadership of the rebellion flees into the into the wilderness. They, they don't stay and fight. And because of that, there is no big fight. But we see hundreds of people, like I said, arrested in the middle of the night, uh, held without uh, without uh, a trial. You know, we see all these massive constitutional violations, which Hamilton is just loving really throughout it. Um, they're keeping people in basements. They're making people march through creeks. This is the dead of winter. This is November of 1794. Um, they're denying them food and water. And they're all, there's this general attitude amongst the soldiers and the command that, you know, this is how a traitor is handled. Um, after the, after the arrests go through, they don't really have a great case against many of them. Uh, they'll take only about two dozen men back to Philadelphia for trial. They'll make them march on foot behind the army. People will be throwing vegetables at them. They'll be, they'll be in very meager clothes. And then when they get to Philadelphia, they, they continue that parade right in front of George Washington's mansion. And he will stand on the, on the front porch, or actually, I believe, look out the window. And one commander says that he smiled approvingly as they were dragged through the streets. Um, only two, they'll spend a year in jail after all of that. They can't find witnesses. They can't find anyone to corroborate. Only two people have actual. What, what would the crime have been? Uh, it was it was insurrection, sedition, treason, okay. um, a litany. Um, two men will be found guilty. They really weren't even close to being the worst offenders. Uh, they were just the only ones with any evidence against them. One man punched out a federal tax collector in the jaw when he came onto his farm, but we never saw him at any major events dealing with the rebellion. And the other man um, raided uh, mail coming out of the federal fort in Pittsburgh. So there was evidence against him. And they were sentenced to hang. And a special interest group of Quakers in Philadelphia kind of begged President Washington to spare their lives. And with only a few days left, he did he did spare them. So there was never any execution for any participation in the Whiskey Rebellion. So when they went out to go start rounding people up, were there any – were there – was there any loss of life at that point or did everybody just get captured without anybody getting killed? The only time we'll see people, people die is in that year long imprisonment in, in Philadelphia. We'll see a man who was one of the primary ringleaders of the movement named Herman husband. He's, he's elderly, but he'll be released and he'll be dead within a month because of his general mistreatment in the, in the prison. And the prison was right next to independence hall in Philadelphia with the Walnut street jail. Um, but we won't see any hangings or executions uh, otherwise. So what would you say? I mean, I love taxes because it seems like taxes are always at the root of all of the amazing things that happen in history. And uh, we talked uh, a couple of days ago to somebody who talked about taxes and their role in, in the, the revolution. And now we have a few years after the revolution, taxes bearing an important uh, role in the kind of consolidation or consummation of the government to make it kind of more more legitimate or more powerful or something. What would you say are the key takeaways or the key things that one should know exist 
today because of the Whiskey Rebellion? Like, the Whiskey Rebellion happened a long time ago, but, like, why does it matter to us today? Well, I always, Scott, I always say that, you know, people like to say things like, history repeats itself or those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. I don't, I don't buy into those kind of things. The 1790s are gone. I think history is always best used as a mirror mm. to look at our own world. Uh, that's when history is really at its most useful. But when you examine the whiskey rebellion, the interesting things about it are that the early on before it got very unruly and violent, um, the complaints these people had were legitimate complaints, which led to the creation of a second political party in, in, in the United States, uh, led by Thomas Jefferson, which was a small government, states' rights, you know, sort of power in the hands of the individual more than some federal bureaucracy. That was very popular, and, and that got him elected pretty easily in 1800. Jefferson is the one that got rid of this. Uh, but I think in a bigger sense, you know, we live in an age where something really strange has happened with this book. And I'm glad it has um, because this book has been I've heard from people on the left and people on the right. And there's this there's this connection to recent events, particularly January 6th. And people on the left are saying, look how Washington handled that rebellion. He went in with force. People on the right are saying, look how many people were hanged for this. Nobody was arrested. Hamilton, uh, Washington pardoned them. You know, it just reminds me that, yeah, things can seem bad. We can seem, you know, disunified, but we've been there before. We have a constitution. We have a rule of law. We have ways to deal with these very terrible periods. You know, at the time, the Whiskey Rebellion was called the Western Insurrection. It was never called the Whiskey Rebellion until Jefferson began running for president, and it was one of his platforms look at this government abuse. And Hamilton's the one that started calling it the Little Whiskey Rebellion. At the time, it was the very ominous sounding Western insurrection. Uh, but H Hamilton believed by calling it the Little Whiskey Rebellion, it kind of minimized it. Like, oh, it didn't really matter. Uh, but it did matter. It was a very big deal. Uh, President Washington knew it mattered. It was, the, it was the greatest crisis of many crises that he faced. And it just reminds me that we've been through a lot of things before. Uh, and the rules are still the same, essentially. So I take I take comfort in history, uh, but I think there's big, important lessons to be learned there. All right. Well, Brady, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, this has been another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University. And I have been joined, as always, by my friend and co-host at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeff Hoops. Our guest today has been author and historian Brady Kreitzer, who's recently released book, The Whiskey Rebellion, A Distilled History of an American Crisis, is now available on Amazon and other places. And we remind you that if you're interested in earning CPE credit for listening to Tax Chats, you can go to earmarkcpe.com and download the free app, then go to the Tax Chats channel, register for the course, and take a short quiz, and you can earn CPE credit. Thank you for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Bye.